It's so familiar, but so important, these words. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. In one sense, I don't think I need to say anything else about the importance of understanding covenants. It goes without saying, if Christ's work is described as covenantal, if you will, well, that tells us it's super important. It's crucial as far as understanding Christianity. This cup is the new covenant, the new oath in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. And so we're to constantly be remembering the covenantal work of Jesus on the cross. That's got my attention right there. It becomes vital, it becomes essential. And in this series that we're doing on Sunday nights called The Drama of Redemption, uh, looking at the big story of the Bible and how God has a plan and how that plan is unfolding through all different kinds of places and people, one major thing that's crucial from Genesis to Revelation literally would be understanding something about covenants. And so the better or more you can understand the reality of covenants, the better you can understand the Bible, the better you can understand Christianity. And so I hope tonight we at least learn a little bit more. Uh, for some of you, this is old hat, and you'll say, I know all this stuff, thanks for the reminder. Uh, for some of you, you'll, you'll just learn a little bit, because a bunch of it will be new. And for others, uh, it'll be just right, uh, I guess. <laughs> so I hope, we can, I hope no matter where you are, you'll at least learn a little bit, if not a whole lot, and be well on your way to at least understanding better um, God's great work by understanding the significant um, reality of covenants. And so what we're going to do tonight, and I hope we get this done tonight, I'll eventually speed up pretty fast. I'd rather do it in one part, but we'll see how that goes. Um, we're going to do a, a question and answer format. So I'm going to pose seven questions, offer seven answers, so we'll kind of have the discovery process as we go learning about covenants. Seven important questions about covenants and seven answers uh, to that question. So I'll preview them now. Number one, why should I care about covenants? Why should I care about covenants? Number two, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? Number three, what are the biblical covenants? What are the biblical covenants? Number four, how can we categorize the covenants? How can we categorize the covenants maybe more easily? Number five, what are some competing views of the covenants? What are competing views? That's the controversy part of it. Number six, uh, do dispensationalists believe in covenants? Do dispensationalists believe in covenants? If you don't know what dispensationalists are, we'll get to that. Uh, number seven, um, what's the practical importance? Why, why, why should I care? Maybe I should start there, but I'll just give you a heads up. Pretty much, why should I care um, would be practical importance. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll go full, full circle. So number one, why should I care about covenants? Just to kind of unload on you a bullet point number of reasons, all kinds of reasons. Care about covenants because the raw data of Scripture demands that you care. Hundreds of times, hundreds of times the word covenant is used in the Bible. And so that should tell me that I, I care because it's used so often in the Bible. God cares, so, so I should care. Literally, like I said, from Genesis to Revelation, you see the word covenant used. So, so I, I want to know what it's about. If I'm going to understand the Bible, I better understand something about covenants. And not only is the word used, but oftentimes when the word isn't used, you see, the, you see that you know, if, it, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and sounds like a duck, might be a duck. Um, you, you, you see that you see the, the, the covenantal underpin, underpinnings, if you will, uh, even when the word isn't used. Um, another reason it's 
impossible to understand the work of Christ, really, with any kind of depth, if I don't understand something about covenants based upon that text we just read. How can I understand the work of Christ if I don't understand anything about covenants? I know some people today, when they heard me say what I said to introduce this, and I used a synonym and I said, this cup is the new covenant, this cup is the new oath, the new swearing promise in my blood. It was enlightening because they'd never thought about what it really meant. We just say it all the time. Another reason this is important is because it is a gospel-related issue. It is a gospel-related issue. Like in the book of Galatians, if you confuse two different covenants, um, you're in trouble spiritually. And so it's a vital, important issue. If you're confusing the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant and you think you get to God a certain way and you actually get to God a different way, um, it's, it's calamity. So it's a gospel-related issue. Another reason why it's important for us, I'm already editing on the fly because whoever invented clocks is a mean person. Um, not really, they're super helpful. But um, another reason, just to, to give you a few more at least, um, because it's important in the drama of redemption. You're going to understand the drama of redemption and how it all actually is one story. What holds it together oftentimes would be these covenant themes. Uh, not only that, it's important because our worship is dependent in one way or another on a covenant reality. In order for us to truly worship God as sinners, we have to have a mediator. Okay, We have to have a mediator or we can't really worship God. And Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24 says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. How can we really worship God without a mediator? We can't. And not only is He the mediator, He's the mediator of the new covenant, which is a salvation kind of thing. I have another reason here, because assurance of salvation depends upon it. Assurance of salvation depends upon it. If you struggle with assurance of salvation, I hope you can understand the, the covenant reality better. You can have greater assurance of salvation. God is the one who takes the oath when it comes to salvation covenants. He's the one who swears by His own character, by His own nature. This is how it's going to be, and it can't be undone, therefore. Well, guess what? My confidence ultimately is not in me. My confidence ultimately is in Him because He's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Jesus affirms this even in the text we just read. And maybe one more reason, and that would be uh, very practical. The unity and diversity of Scripture... The unity and diversity of Scripture, if you understand something of how covenants work and what the covenants are, it'll help you see the unity of Scripture and how it all does go together. But it'll also help you see that there is diversity in Scripture and some of it's a necessary diversity. It'll help you. It'll help you along the way uh, on your journey, so to speak, through the Bible. Okay, I'm thoroughly motivated. You guys don't look motivated, so I'm just going to look at my notes and not you guys. No, I'm kidding. Number two, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? Well, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I at least hope everybody here could know one good synonym for a covenant. One good synonym. It's not the only one, but one good synonym for a covenant is oath. Okay? It's an oath. We use covenants in our culture. We don't use the terms very often, but when you're signing all those papers to buy a house or whatever it might be, they're, they're might, might you, they might use covenant kind of terminology. If you have a contract 
Uh, it's not a perfect uh, synonym, but it's a kind of covenant. Um, you're taking an oath. You're, you're, you're promising. You're, you're swearing, if you will, that you're going to uphold your end of the deal. Okay? Um, but maybe to be a little bit more formal, these are some that I read last time uh, from that helpful little book called Sacred Bond. A covenant is a formal agreement that creates a relationship with legal aspects. It's a formal agreement that creates a relationship with legal aspects. Biblical covenants are treaties that express a committed relationship of love and loyalty, gratitude, allegiance, obligation between God as sovereign, God who's in charge, and His chosen people as the servants. You have the sovereign and the servant. That's um, that Dennis Johnson quote that I mentioned last time. Where there's a formal relationship in the Bible, more than likely, if there's a formal relationship, you're going to have some sort of covenantal relationship. Uh, I mentioned last time, Adam wasn't free to do whatever he wanted to do as a created being. There was, there was a formal relationship between he and God. And we'll see tonight, we did last time as well, that Scripture, at least on one occasion, refers to that as a covenant there are obligations. He's not just free to do whatever he wants to do. God, as his creator, has a relationship with his created being, Adam, and there are obligations. He's, he's held to something. And that begins to at least help us understand it a little bit. Well, enough of what it is for now. Number three, we are cruising. This is, this is fantastic. I'm such an overachiever. I'm so proud of myself. And now we're going to slow down. Number three, what are the main biblical covenants? Um, there are more covenants mentioned in the Bible, but I'm just going for the big group. I didn't even count how many. What are the main biblical covenants? Some of these we're going to cover super fast. Some we're going to have to kind of settle in a little bit more um, based upon how clearly they're stated in Scripture. What are the main biblical covenants? And we're going to start with things in the Bible that are actually explicitly called a covenant. Okay? And if you're drooping, drooping or, or falling off on your motivation, it's going to help you understand the Bible as a whole better. It's going to help you understand the gospel better. It's going to help you not be confused when you're reading Deuteronomy. It's going to help you to not be confused when you're reading Mosaic Law. It's going to help you to understand what Christ has done. So, number three, what are the main biblical covenants? The first covenant would be what I'm going to call the Adamic covenant. The Adamic covenant. Warning, different people use the titles differently. Okay? The reason I'm, I don't usually use this title, but I'm going to talk about the Adamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And it just sounds better if I call it the Adamic covenant. Uh, and so some people don't call it this and they mean something else by what they say when they say Adamic covenant. Um, it goes by other terms. Okay? Sometimes it's called the covenant of creation. Sometimes it's called um, covenant of law. Sometimes it's called covenant of works. Sometimes it's called covenant of life. Sometimes it's called covenant of nature. Okay? Uh, the traditional one I'm most familiar with is the covenant of works. But it's the covenant that God has between himself and Adam, okay? So that, that's what's in view. Whether you'd like to call it the Adamic covenant or something else, 
Um, it's totally up to you. But, but that's, that's what we're getting at, that there's a formal relationship between Adam and God. Um, and tied to that would be um, obligations. Um, there would be blessings for uh, honoring it. There would be cursings for dishonoring it. Okay? It's a crucial one in understanding um, not only the, the reality of what went on with Adam, but it's crucial even in understanding what, what went on with Jesus. And we'll get to that. Because we have the first Adam and we have the last Adam. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is referred to as the last Adam. And here's what ends up happening. Your understanding of God's relationship with the first Adam and the first Adam's relationship to us ends up having a direct bearing on your understanding of the last Adam's relationship to his father and his relationship to us, stressing the importance of this one. This is a big one. You with me? You okay? I'm running out of breath. Romans chapter 5. Let's look at Romans 5 because Romans 5 is a divine commentary on Genesis 2 and 3. Okay, so really we need to go to Genesis 2 and 3, but I'm going to take you to, Revel- or excuse me, to Romans chapter 5 to at least see there, there's covenantal talk here. The word covenant is not used in Romans 5. The word covenant is not used in Genesis chapters 2 or 3. We'll talk about that factor in just a little while. It is used, the word covenant is used in relationship to this passage, but not until Hosea chapter 6. So we're going to see this is called a covenant, but not in Romans chapter 5. And yet you have the covenantal fingerprints, if you will. Um, You have cursings promised if there's disobedience. You have blessings promised if there's obedience, um, which is what you end up seeing where there's a formal agreement. Okay, There's a a covenantal kind of agreement. And maybe let's just jump, uh, cut to the chase. Maybe I've got... 12 to 19 12 to 19 written down from Romans 5 but let's go ahead and just drop down to 19 Romans 5:19 says for as by the one man's disobedience who's it talking about it's talking about Adam right clearly it's talking about so by the one man's disobedience the many because he's a representative were made sinners okay so you have disobedience leading to a, to if we're talking in covenantal terms to 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 cursings They're made sinners. Something bad happens. So by the one man's obedience, who's that talking about? That's talking about Christ, the last Adam. The one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So there we have have blessing tied to devotion and obedience. And we won't take the time to go through, but in verse 15, you have the trespass through one man's trespass. There's, see, there's violation of the, of, the, of the expectation, violation of the contract, if you will, violation of a covenant. Um, also in verse 16, one man's sin, one trespass brought condemnation. You have these covenantal kind of cursings. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, through that one man, it also says in that verse, verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation. That's that cursing kind of idea. And yet, at the end of verse 18, you have uh, life. You have something positive. And that life is tied in verse 19 to obedience. Disobedience, cursings. Obedience, blessings. Death, condemnation, life. It's pretty straightforward. Representation going on here. Again, the word covenant isn't used, but it has covenant fingerprints all over it. And it's the divine commentary of Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. One person defines this covenant in this way. 
God's commitment to give Adam and those he represents eternal life for obedience, for covenant keeping in other words, or eternal death for disobedience. But even though it's not called the covenant in Genesis and it's not called the covenant in Romans 5, it has the earmarks of a covenant and Hosea chapter 6 says it's a covenant. Says it's a covenant. Hosea chapter 6 verse 7 says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And some people say that's not really the Adam of Genesis. Um, I take it it's the Adam of Genesis. And I'm in really, really good company to say that's the Adam of Genesis. And here are these people's disobedience. We're going to describe them as like Adam, they transgress the covenant. I think that's exactly what it's getting at, what it says at face value. We should also note that other covenants in the Bible aren't always called covenants, even though they are. The Davidic covenant we'll get to later in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is not called a covenant, but we know that it is, and it's called one later. I would also want to point out to you that in Genesis 3, the word sin is not used. It's the granddaddy passage of them all. Sin is never even mentioned, but we know that that's where the fall happens. We don't have to have the word used there to have the reality be there. It clearly is there as far as a reality is concerned. In so many ways, Christianity can be explained, the Bible can be explained, to borrow from one author, as a tale of two Adams. Formal relationship between the first Adam represents the human race and he drives the car into the ditch spiritually. We're all passengers. And then you have the last Adam who comes and fulfills the promise of redemption starting in Genesis chapter 3 and he too is our representative who leads us in salvation. And so, so many times we call him the, the federal head of the human race. Adam, the federal head. Jesus, the federal head. That is the representative, or that word can be translated, covenantal head. Um, the tale of two Adams. I'm so thankful. We're going to get to this a little bit later. But I'm so thankful, or, or we're going to get to why this is so crucial when we talk about people who deny this. And, and the trouble it gets you into. But I'm so thankful that I was taught this in seminary. I'm so thankful I had to read hard books about this. I'm so thankful that I had to read significant books about this, historic books about this. Because once again, your view of Adam and his relationship with God will most certainly, and history f affirms this, have a view on your, have an impact on your view of Jesus as a representative, which will have a view of your understanding of things like salvation and justification and things like that. So I, I'm just thankful. And the longer I'm out of seminary, the more thankful I am because controversy, 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 controversy about issues regarding the work of Christ. And one way to help you in understanding the gospel and the work of Jesus, who's the last Adam, is to understand the first Adam, and how did he relate to God? Well, enough about that. 
All right, let's move on to another covenant we can cover rather quickly, and that would be the Noahic covenant. Okay, Genesis chapter 9, ever so quickly, the Noahic covenant. Guess who that's a covenant with? Well, it's a covenant with Noah, um, and not only Noah, but really all the peoples of the earth. Genesis chapter 9, God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. And he goes on to explain, he talks about covenant, 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 covenant. He's not going to destroy the earth again with water. And so we have this this contractual relationship, this formal relationship. And God puts his own character on the line saying, I'm not going to wipe the earth out uh, uh, the way I did before. Somebody defined it this way. It's God's covenant of common grace. Okay, It's not just for believers. It's believers and unbelievers. It's gracious. He could wipe us out because we're rebels. But it's gracious and it's shown to everybody. It's common grace. Not saving grace. Common grace with the earth despite mankind's depravity to sustain its order until the very end of time, until the consummation. So Genesis 9, 12 to 17, pretty easy one to understand. Let's move on. Let's move on to one called the Abrahamic Covenant. You can turn over three, three chapters to Genesis 12. This one's important. Okay, this is a big one. This is, uh, this is carry us all the way into the New Testament. So, your, your salvation is related to the Abrahamic Covenant. Uh, so now you have a, a vested interest. Um, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Let's go ahead and look at that. Now the Lord said to Abram, the pagan, by the way, um, said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3 says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's going to make him a great nation but it's beyond that. It's all the families of the earth so it's beyond his great nation. It, It goes Much broader than that. We're not going to take the time to go there, but we can see the the covenant um, ratified, if you will, in Genesis 15. It's an important passage. We're just surveying, so we're not going there. Genesis 17 talks about the Abrahamic covenant as well. It's this formal relationship between God and Abraham. And this gracious covenant is not a common grace covenant like the Noahic covenant. It's a gracious covenant because it has to do with salvation for everyone who would ever believe. Old Testament, New Testament. It's a gracious, let's call it a capital G gracious kind of covenant. And we know that it has to do with us because of Galatians. We read from Galatians this morning. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 now. You can either write it down or you can go ahead and turn there. But this is one of those covenants that that go, it's, you know... Um, transtestamental. It starts way back in Genesis 12, and this is the way people are saved. The only way ever pe- people are ever saved has to do with this, ultimately, because ultimately it's pointing to Christ who's going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? And we learn about Abraham being justified by faith. He trusts in God's promise in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 4, and, and he's the one we're to, to, to be like. Because he trusts in God for his right standing. Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, 
He's, he's referencing Genesis 2.7. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And then, in our context there, all who are in Christ are heirs. We're saved. So we trust in Christ. We're united to Christ. But He, He, Jesus is the one who fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? It's in anticipation of Him. And Galatians chapter 3 makes that clear. The Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled because Jesus is the seed in whom all the nations are blessed. Jesus is the promised Son of Abraham. And we see that clearly in the New Testament. He's the one we were waiting for. Anyone who's ever been saved, I think it's fair to say, is somehow related to that because Christ is the one mediator. He's the guy. He's the one and only fulfillment of that, ultimately. With me? Okay? If you have questions, jot them down. We'll talk about it afterward, but we're, we're seeing Abrahamic covenant is super important. There's more to be said, more to be learned, but we see important in the Old Testament, important in the New Testament. Now let's go on to another covenant, and that would be the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is sometimes called uh, the Covenant at Sinai because of Mount Sinai, the Sinaitic Covenant, or sometimes it's called the Old Covenant. Exodus chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 5. So Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 5. Let's go ahead and look at those passages. Um, And as you're finding them, here's a good explanation of the Mosaic Covenant. God's law covenant with Israel. It's God's law covenant with Israel wherein He graciously leads them to Christ by showing them the perfect righteousness that only Christ could fulfill for redeemed sinners. It's this law covenant pushing them to see. And that definition is enlightened by Galatians. it's, It's driving them to Christ, seeing that they need perfect righteousness and they don't have it themselves, and so it's going to show it to them. So I'm going to read from Exodus 19. There was one seminary professor we had that you used to say when we're doing these Bible drills, okay, get out your WD-40, men. Um, You're going to have to really lube up those Bibles. Anyway, so I guess we're going to do WD-40 today. Exodus 19, Mosaic Covenant, okay? The Covenant at Sinai. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out to the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice... And keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. We'll just stop there for now. But I hope you're already seeing a difference between Abrahamic covenant 
and Mosaic Covenant. How about Deuteronomy chapter 5? A complementary passage of the one we've just looked at, still dealing with, dealing with this, this Mosaic Covenant. Deuteronomy 5 verse 1 says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. There's a big difference between Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant. I hope you see a big difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Now, to be fair, we didn't actually look at Genesis chapter 17. We didn't go into detail. But that Abrahamic covenant is through and through gracious. It's through and through based upon the work of God. It's through and through based upon Jesus fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? He's the one. Whereas we read the Mosaic covenant and it is, if you do these things, Israel, then I will be this kind of blessing to you. You must do this. And the people are just nuts enough to say, we will, we will. And it doesn't go well, does it? It doesn't go well at all. But there's a huge difference between those kinds of covenants. And earlier I said it's vital and important that we understand the distinction between certain kinds of covenants or we're going to have a wrong understanding of salvation. And if you don't see this as you're reading your Old Testament, it's crashing and burning and you're ready to join a cult. And God didn't intend it to be that way. One has to do with national Israel. It's important. It's vital. Blessings in the land tied to their obedience, but never, ever, 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 ever was their justification tied to that. Was it to be tied to that? Because Abrahamic covenant is about trusting in God like Abraham did. So there's a huge difference. If you, if you get that, you should pay double tonight. I mean, if you get that, you're really at least going to be well on your way to understanding the Bible better than you would otherwise. Israel will fail. And they will fail time and time again when it comes to the Mosaic Covenant that's dependent upon them. One author puts it this way rather helpfully. And if you don't want to listen to other authors, no problem. Helpful for me. The Abrahamic Covenant is fulfilled because Jesus, who also fulfills the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant by His obedience, is the seed in whom all the nations are blessed. Jesus is the promised Son of Abraham. The Mosaic Covenant is not altered in any way. Rather, it too is fulfilled by Jesus, so that in Jesus the children of God may receive the inheritance on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant. Both are important. Jesus is the answer to this one. And Jesus is the answer to this one. Jesus is the seed. Jesus fulfills the Mosaic law. But we, we come to God. We, we, we come to God. We approach God. We're, we're reconciled to God. Not by our law-keeping. But through the promise, trusting in, in Him. So realize there's, there's different things going on. Israelites were to be right with God in their relationship by trusting in Him for justification. Okay? Abrahamic covenant. And yet you have a Mosaic covenant that 
says, you must do these things. And they must. They needed to. Temporal blessing dependent upon it. Entering into the land dependent upon it. And then things get really confusing when you confuse those two and think our right standing before God as far as our justification is concerned is through Mosaic Covenant? No. Just like it shouldn't be that way for us either. The two are related because Christ fulfills that law. Now we move on to another covenant. The Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Are we going fast enough? Maybe faster? We need to go faster? I think we need to go faster. Davidic covenant's the next one. Uh, this is just a, a primer anyway, right? There's, we have our whole life to learn this stuff. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. It's a really nice way to talk about a graveyard, huh? Um, I'm just going to go lie down with my fathers. Uh, you lie down with your fathers. I, I will raise up, this is God speaking to, to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Word covenant isn't used, but it is used to describe the same thing in Psalm 89, verse 3. One person describes what's going on there this way, and then I'll elaborate. God's promise to David that when his righteous son builds a house for God's name, God will grant him an eternal kingdom. See, see David couldn't do it. And we're not going to get into the historic details of what's going on there. David, no, you're disqualified. But one will come from you. And when that one who is qualified comes, we're going to find out it's not Solomon. But when that one who comes, who's qualified, who is a righteous one, he will build a house for me. And when that qualified one builds a house, think temple, for me, it will last and his dynasty will last forever. It will be an eternal kingdom. And so there's the Davidic covenant okay the davidic covenant is what is in view there well this is fascinating and really important because matthew chapter 1 verse 1 reads the book of the genealogy of jesus christ oh remember christ means messiah king the genealogy the messiah david was a messiah solomon was a messiah because they were anointed kings right saul was a messiah anointed kings Jesus Christ, read Jesus Messiah. Oh, okay, okay. Is He the one? Is He the one? We've been waiting, waiting, waiting. Jesus Messiah, the Son of David. Oh, it's got to be a Son of David, as 2 Samuel 7 says. The Son of Abraham. And then the genealogy unfolds. And that's the whole point. He's the one. Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant. Jesus is the one that God talked about when He was talking to King David. And when the one who is worthy comes, He will be the king and He'll be the king forever. Davidic covenant is a huge issue when it comes to understanding who Jesus is. Psalm chapter 2 talks about this. We're not going to take the time to go there. And then the New Testament keeps quoting Psalm 2. And He rules with a rod of iron. 
rules the nations. He's the one who brings equity and justice. And He'll do so forever and ever. And you, you see that quoted all over the place in the New Testament. Now, let me just ask you this question for those of you who are like, you know, front of the class, A students. Is the Davidic covenant a conditional covenant or an unconditional covenant? Meaning, does something need to be done in order for it to be a reality? It's a trick question. Well, it's unconditional, right? Because God says He's going to do this. God says, this is what I'm going to do in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so, so in that sense, and like the Abrahamic covenant, it's, it's unconditional. It's not something that we do. And if we work really hard, you know, we're going to fulfill the Davidic covenant. No, it's unconditional. But it most certainly is conditional because you have to have the righteous one. You have to have the qualified guy. You have to have the one who is worthy to build a house for God, who's, who's, who doesn't have his hands dirty from being a sinner. And, and so when Jesus is the one, he's the worthy one. How about this? Jesus meets the condition. He's qualified. He'll be the only one qualified for this. I, I so want to show you, just if you want to just jot down 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings 9 verses... Um, Three to seven. I, I think we're not going to take the time to go there, um, but it's it's fascinating because we see Solomon builds a temple, and Solomon is not going to be the guy, and that temple is going to be wiped out because he is not righteous. He's not qualified, and so what we have is David. No, Solomon. No, Solomon's not qualified. No. Nobody's qualified. We eventually have to have the one who would be Jesus. First Kings 9, verses 3 to 7 is fascinating uh, when it comes to this, this whole thing. It has to be a righteous one. And if the righteous one comes, he'll be on a royal throne over Israel, it says in that chapter, forever. As I promised David, your father. It's just it's a, a cool passage. Someone comments on it this way. We cannot miss how this requirement for righteousness picks up. Listen to this carefully. Turn on your theological brain. How it picks up the works principle of the Mosaic Covenant. You've got to do this to be qualified to do this. Pulled right out of Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy kind of talk. That's, it's referencing 1 Kings 9. The Davidic son has to keep the law of Moses. This is the righteousness he must fulfill for an eternal throne. The conditional dynamic of the unconditional covenant becomes the map for the rest of biblical history. He's got to meet the Mosaic qualifications. He has to keep the Mosaic law or he's not qualified to be the Davidic king. Huh. Now you might be thinking, this seems like a, a complicated issue. It kind of is, but in another sense it's not. He's got to fulfill the Mosaic law or he can't be the Davidic king. And Jesus fulfills the Mosaic law so he can be the Davidic king. And we want him to be the Davidic king, by the way. Ruling and reigning forever and ever. Perfect equity. No more injustice. No more bad judges. No more corruption. No more none of that. Any of that. It's tied to him. Luke chapter 1 verse 32 says... He will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Ah, he's the one who's qualified. So if you understand some of the things we're talking about, and we've just done this in a short amount of time. You understand some of these things, and then you read Luke 1, and you go, Amazing! This is outstanding. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Oh, now I get how this could be. And of his kingdom there will be no end. How important is that? Every time you read Jesus Christ, it's important. Jesus Messiah. Every single time you read Jesus Christ, Jesus, eternal, ruling, reigning, son of David, and the only way he could be son of David is if he had done this and lived. Remember the people of Israel? We will. We'll do it. Jesus, full on, could say, I will and I did. Huh. Luke chapter 1. He is appointed ruling, reigning king. No corruption, no injustice. I'm having a little hallelujah chorus going on inside my soul. And I'm thinking, I sure wish somebody would have just sat me down and, you know, explained some of this to me a long time ago. Like when I first became a Christian. Just help me work through this. Why am I so confused by reading Deuteronomy? Is salvation by works or by grace? Well, the answer is it's only by grace. Well, just help me understand some basic covenantal kind of structures like the difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, and I'd be off and running. Super helpful. Okay, another covenant is the new covenant. The new covenant is another covenant, and we read about it in Jeremiah chapter 31. We read about it in Luke 22 with the, with the Last Supper and the cup. Uh, we read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. I'll just, read second, I'll, I'll just read the passage that you know so well. This cup is poured out for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well, the new covenant in his blood promised, prophesied, Jeremiah chapter 31. It's this great final, culminating reality in contrast to the old covenant. Sacrificial system, have to have these mediator priests and all this. No, Jesus says, I fulfill that old and I am the mediator of the new covenant. I'm the one. All of those types and shadows find their fulfillment in me and you don't have to go through that system anymore you go right through me and it's extraordinary Hebrews chapter 8 Hebrews chapter 9 Hebrews chapter 12 one person put it this way God this is God bringing forth the new creation in his people through the finished work of Christ in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant so we see starts with Abraham related to that and in its ultimate climactic sense we're looking toward new covenant Take a breath, move on to the next one. New Covenant's way more important than I just gave it attention, okay? Um, it's crucial. You know, it's, it's high point, climax. 
We could talk about things, how new covenant in the end, oh well, because of his final work we learn about in Hebrews, like in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 9, that even those who were saved under the old covenant system, having faith like Abraham, well, ultimately would, could never have been saved apart from the new covenant reality that was anticipated in Christ in his finished work. And we could get into all that, and it's rich and interesting and awesome, but it's survey. Next covenant is the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. I think we have two more to go. Two more to go. Covenant of redemption is the next one we're going to cover. Not everybody calls it a covenant, okay? Um, But many people, and it's most traditional, I would have to say, most traditional to call it a covenant, covenant of redemption. People I respect the most, whether they're living or dead, call it a covenant of redemption. Uh, I was taught to call it a covenant of redemption when I went to seminary. So I just think, let's just go ahead and call it a covenant. Um, You might not, but I have the microphone tonight. So, (laughs) the covenant of redemption is describing what went on in eternity past. Whether you want to call it a covenant or not, you can't get around that this happened in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, you have the Father, and you have the Son, and you have the Spirit, and you have a predetermined plan of salvation. You have the Father choosing, okay, before the foundation of the world, and you have the Son who's going to be sent, and you have the Spirit who's going to apply. And so you have this this pre-temporal, before time begins, kind of commitment on behalf of the triune God. And they each have a role to play. They're, they're, they're each, if you will, it assumes they're making a commitment to do this. They have to be making a commitment if it's before the foundation of the world. And so many theologians have said, looks like a duck, walks like a duck, sounds like a duck. I think we'll call it a covenant. Um, <laughs> it, has, it has those kind of earmarks because if it's, a, it's a commitment kind of thing. And they're going to do this most certainly. And so I'm comfortable calling it a, a covenant. Uh, I put it this way just to make sure I'm covering my bases. The covenant of redemption is the formal agreement, which is what a covenant is, between the members of the triune Godhead before the foundation of the world to redeem the elect. It's what Ephesians 1 talks about. Someone else put it this way. It is, they commented on it and said this, it is the basis and driving purpose of all redemptive history. And that's what we've been talking about in the series, the drama of redemption. I mean, we know that it's not just, well, God has a plan B, God has a plan C, and he's always reacting, and, and what do I do next? This whole thing started with us recognizing that before the foundation of the world, that's what it says, God purposed to redeem. Okay. So it wouldn't make any sense to have all this scatterbrained history that has nothing to do with anything, or nothing to do with that, I should say, for many, 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 many thousands of years. And then all of a sudden, we have Jesus showing up on the scene uh, because it's kind of a plan B thing. All along, before time began, this was God's plan, and we see it unfolding if we're looking for it. If we're looking for it. Technically speaking, so check out if you'd like to check out. Uh, But technically speaking, here's a helpful quote from Mike Horton in his Systematic Theology. Uh, The Covenant of Redemption. Also called, if you want to be really technical, in Latin, uh, the pactum salutis, as in pact, right? We make a pact. 
the Pactum Salutis, or the covenant of peace sometimes it's called. Uh, This covenant entered into by the persons of the Trinity in the councils of eternity with the Son mediating its benefits to the elect. The covenant is the basis for all of God's purposes in nature and history, and it is the foundation and efficacy of the covenant of grace. Well, if you don't want to be technical, just forget about that quote. I just want to cross my T's and dot my I's now and then. Now, why should we call it a covenant if the Bible doesn't call it a covenant? Well, the triune God did make a commitment. So, that's a reason to call it a covenant. Again, you don't have to call it a covenant if you don't want to call it a covenant. Uh, There is a formal agreement, and that's what covenants are. I think that's a pretty good reason. And here's another one. Time and time again, Jesus is described as doing what he was sent to do. He had obligations. There were things he had to do. Now, he volunteered, granted, Ephesians chapter 5. But there were things he must do. He must do this and he must do that. And Again, he's not free to do whatever he wants to do. Not that he would want to be. But it looks like he has covenant obligations. Just one sample would be Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews 10, verse 7, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He's he's there under authority, carrying out an obligation. Again, he wants to do it, um, but it is an obligation. There's, There's a commitment. There's something that's been agreed to before he came. Another reason would be because there's biblical precedent for calling things covenants that aren't actually called covenants, like 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, Davidic covenant's not actually called a covenant, at least there. Maybe another reason why I'm comfortable calling it a covenant, the covenant of redemption, even though it doesn't say that in Ephesians chapter 1, and that's because the most respected Bible teachers I know call it a covenant. And uh, if it's uh, helpful as far as explaining things and it's a title, then dead and alive... You know, I respect John MacArthur a lot, and he calls it the covenant of redemption. I heard him say it with my own ears. Um, R.C. Sproul, covenant of redemption. Mike Horton, covenant of redemption. Um, Three similar Bible teachers in so many ways, and yet very different Bible teachers. How do we describe this thing that happened before time began? Well, let's, let's call it what theologians before us have called it. It's a pact. It's a commitment that they made. So it's going to happen. There are obligations. Well, let's call it a covenant. So I call it the covenant of redemption. And again, if you don't want to call it that, that's fine. Uh, But we do need to agree in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit purposed to redeem. And they are going to keep their promises. To one another. They are, they are going to do what they said they were going to do, so to speak. Okay, ready? Let's move on to another one. One more. One more, and that would be called the covenant of grace. Uh, the covenant of grace. And again, this is one that's, you, you can get a, a concordance or search the internet and you can search a Bible and you'll never find the covenant of grace. So if you don't want to call it a covenant of grace, I don't mind. Um, but theologians for a long, long time have called it a covenant of grace. People I respect the most call it a covenant of grace. So I don't mind calling it a covenant of grace. 
We're going to talk more about this broadness, but for now, theologians use this title to describe how God saves. Okay? There's only one way that God saves, and it's always been the one way God saves, and it will always and forever be the way that God saves. It's by grace, and only by grace. He's a saving God, and He only ever will save by grace. That's His commitment. It'll never be a different way. From Genesis 3, and the promise of salvation in Genesis 3, on, 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 there's only ever been one way He's ever saved. And it's been by grace. That's His commitment. That's the way He works. That's the way He operates. This complements 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that Jesus is the only mediator. Well, He's only, the, the true, genuine, capital M mediator. He's only ever been the one mediator. The book of Hebrews would lead us to believe that He's always and only ever been the one mediator. Even in the Old Testament, in anticipation, He's the one and only ultimate, capital M mediator. Now, one reason why theologians have, have come up with this title and they, they've wanted to use it, it's not the only reason, but one reason is because Christians at times have been very confused about how God saves. And, and they've come up with the wild idea that God saves differently at different times. Sometimes He saves by works. They're confused by Mosaic law versus Abrahamic or a covenant. Sometimes he saves by law keeping. Sometimes he saves by grace. And theologians have said, no, there's only one way he's ever saved. His commitment, his covenant way is only ever by grace. And they're really on to something because if you read Romans chapter 4, whether it's Abraham in the Old Testament or David in the Old Testament. And oh, by the way, it's in the Old Testament. <laughs> They're justified by faith and only by faith. Therefore, it's by grace and only by grace. That's the only way God saves. It makes me comfortable with it. Maybe one text, even though it doesn't call it the covenant of grace, uh, should, should prove worthy of jotting down. I haven't thought it through entirely, but others would use it this way, and I, I think they're on to something. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. It talks about the covenants, plural, of promise. The covenants of promise. Well, the covenant of grace is meant to be an umbrella embracing all of those gracious covenants. It's a catch-all kind of title. The covenants of promise might be another way of just saying the covenant of grace. It captures Abrahamic. It captures new. In a certain way, it captures Davidic, but specifically Abrahamic and new. So maybe, maybe that's what he's getting at there. He's not talking about all of the covenants. He's not talking about the Mosaic covenant. There's no way he's talking about that, it would seem. Well, enough of that. We can have interesting conversations afterward if you'd like. Uh, but again, these are the categories. These are the things I was taught when I was in seminary. And they've, they've proved helpful in guiding me. Number four. Number four. How can we more easily categorize the covenants? Okay, wake up too. Just in case you need to wake somebody up, wake them up. How can we, how can we make more sanctified sense out of this and make it simple? We always want simple. How can we make it simple? Well, Theologians over the years, not all of them, some of them, 
have said, all right, here we go. Let's make it simple. We have the covenant of redemption before time begins. Ephesians chapter 1. Okay? Then we have covenant of works, covenant of nature, Adamic covenant, whichever one you'd like to use. We have that. It's not gracious. God tells Adam what to do. And if you do the right thing, there'll be life. And if you do the wrong thing, there'll be death. Okay? We have that. And we have covenant of grace. God always and forever only saves by grace. It's the only way he ever saves. And so, again, many theologians have said, that's, that's the way you can capture the whole thing. And so what you'll do is you'll say, okay, covenant of redemption before time begins. We want to keep that intact and nothing would ever happen apart from that. And then you have a covenantal formal relationship between God and Adam. We want to include that. And then all the other covenants. Under the banner covenant of grace, you, you, you would have all the other ones. The Abrahamic. You would have the Mosaic with qualifiers. You would have the Davidic. You would have the, what am I missing? New covenant. I think I'm capturing most of them without looking at my notes. Amazing. And the reason the mosaic would be with qualifiers would be because it is given to Israel for their good, therefore it's gracious, to, according to Galatians, lead them to Christ. It's not gracious in the sense that it's saving, but it shows them their sin and it points them to Christ. And this is, what I'm giving you is the traditional perspective of these things, okay? Trying not to be novel. Covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace captures all those other ones. And in some ways, the Mosaic covenant looks like a covenant of works. Do this and you'll have life. Yep. But in other ways, since it's never meant to do that, it's meant to push people to Christ, it's gracious in that sense, okay? We could spend a whole semester talking about this stuff but we won't, um, but just to, to, to cover it in that sense. And again, I'm super thankful I learned this at seminary. I'm really glad that this is what I was taught when I was at seminary because it at least gives you a paradigm for thinking through all of the different kinds of biblical covenants. It gives you categories for things, and it helps you to keep things intact. Um, now, number five, what are some competing views of the covenants? What are some of the competing views of the covenants? Well, there are more than I can name, so I'll just go quick on some of them, uh, starting with the bizarre. Um, some have said there are two new covenants. So the one new covenant. I think that's bizarre. There's even a website. Uh, two new, no. Yeah, twonewcovenants.com. And they're, they're trying to uphold a really, really old, abandoned dispensational view that you, you have to have two different new covenants. And I don't know of any dispensationalists who believe that anymore. They used to all believe that, and they figured out that that didn't work, and they got called on the carpet by too many people. And so all dispensationalists have repented of two new covenants. Um, but there are still some holdouts. Okay, you have two different new covenants, so you have to fulfill it twice, and you have heavenly people, and you have earthly people, and it's confusing. So I, I wouldn't hold to that. That's a competing view of it, though. Another competing view would be people who deny the covenant with Adam, uh, which is more popular. Um, unfortunately, there are plenty of people that don't believe that uh, Adam had a covenantal relationship with God um, because the word isn't used and things like that. Um, people who are part, so not everybody, but some people who are part of something called New Covenant Theology. Uh, not everybody, but uh, many people in the New Covenant Theology movement 
Um, I like the New Covenant, but New Covenant theology movement, they deny that God had a covenant or God had a covenantal relationship with Adam. They deny a covenant of works. They deny the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer, many of them. Um, it's dangerous when it comes to salvation. Um, time and time again, it leads to an errant view of Christ when you have an errant view of Adam, and that's what happens there. Another uh, movement would be called, um, though they might not use the title, mono-covenantalism. I just like saying it. Mono-covenantalism sounds like something you catch, um, and I'm going to label it as something not helpful to your immune system. Um, Mono-covenantalism is what you might think it is. There's only one covenant. And they would acknowledge there's Davidic and there's Mosaic and there's Abrahamic. But when it comes to systematic theology, they're going to say there's only one. And they flatten out the whole Bible with no contours. Now, sometimes we make too many contours. But they just want to say total flatline monocovenantalist. So you have grace before the fall, which is problematic for reasons we won't get into. You also have the Mosaic law as a way of salvation problematic. It's no wonder then that people like N.T. Wright, who's a popular writer, N.T. Wright will have justification in a final, ultimate sense, be by your works. And he's going to be very comfortable quoting Old Testament law as proof that you have to have this. It's a major, major issue. He's tried so hard and flattened everything out. I like it. He wants to talk about covenants. But what he means by covenants are not what we would mean by covenants. Um, you, that's why it's so important. I think you've you got to make sure you understand there's a distinction between old and new covenant. I mean, at least on that level, uh, you have to see there's, there's difference. There's distinction. There's a distinction between Mosaic and Abrahamic. Um, there was someone else who tried to do this, and here's what they did. I'll tell you just a little story. They were so tired of of not normal but extreme kind of dispensationalism where the Bible's super chopped up and different ways of salvation and salvation by works and salvation by faith and all these different kinds of things. Um, they, their reaction, this is Daniel Fuller. Daniel Fuller, Fuller hated dispensationalism. And so his overreaction the other way is a kind of monocovenantalism. Total flat line across the board. And now all of a sudden the view of Adam is different. And now we have grace before the fall and we have very very flatness when it comes to the different kinds of covenants throughout the bible and what you end up having is a confusion ultimately about how we're justified are we are we justified by obedience and it falls into that trap no we're not justified by obedience we're justified by faith and only by faith and it's always only ever been by faith Others have fallen into this same kind of thing. I don't need to name more names. Uh, but again, it comes back to this maybe learning from history and learning that people, you know, it was for good reason they wanted to make sure we understood there's a difference between Mosaic law and our Mosaic covenant and Abrahamic covenant. They're both important. They're both vital. They're both crucial. Jesus is the answer for both. Um, but... Got to think clearly about it. Next question would be, uh, do dispensationalists believe in covenants? I mentioned dispensationalists because um, so many of us uh, would say we're dispensationalists. You say, are you a dispensationalist? I'm going to say, what do you mean? If you say, are you a covenantalist? I'm going to say, what do you mean? Um, do dis- can you be a dispensationalist and believe in covenants? Meaning, um, let's say in dispensationalism, you believe um, 
that there's a future for the nation of Israel. If you're that kind of person, do you believe in covenants? Well, you can. You absolutely can. History tells you you can't. Some people will say you can't. But there are plenty of people who are dispensationalists who believe in a future for the nation of Israel who believe in the very covenants I'm talking about tonight. You don't get more dispensational than Lewis Berry Chafer. Okay? He's not the father of dispensationalism, but one of the forefathers of the whole thing. And he believed in the covenant of redemption. It's in his systematic theology. S. Lewis Johnson, a dispensationalist, he believed in the covenant of works, covenant of redemption, covenant of grace. I learned most about what I know about theology from, in the early days from listening to John MacArthur preach and S. Lewis Johnson preach. S. Lewis Johnson believed in the covenant of grace, covenant of redemption, covenant of works. I went to a dis- dispensational seminary and my required reading was Burkhoff's Systematic Theology and the lectures taught me covenant of grace, covenant of redemption, covenant of works. Apparently you can. Again, I've heard John MacArthur with his, with my, with his own ears, uh, with my own ears, uh, refer to Ephesians 1 and what went on there as a covenant of redemption. It's my personal opinion that um, sometimes what happens is uh, they want to refine the system so much and protect it that they won't allow for some of these theological covenants that their ancestors believed in. And here's what happens time and time again. When you don't hold them, you sort of fall asleep at the wheel and before you know it, you're denying things like Christ's imputed righteousness. Because you have a faulty view of Adam's relationship with God and therefore you have a faulty view of Jesus' relationship with God. You have a faulty view of Jesus' relationship to the Mosaic Law. And before you know it, the car's in the ditch and we're denying basic, historic, Protestant doctrines we don't have to. We don't have to. More could be said about that. Uh, maybe one more thing I will say. Um, if you say, I, I'm a dispensationalist, so I can't believe in a covenant of redemption or a covenant of grace because the Bible doesn't label them as such. Where does your Bible talk about seven dispensations anyway? It doesn't. It doesn't. It's a way of reading the Bible. I'm not going to fault you for it. But don't fault me for reading my Bible this way when I think actually the text will prove it up. There are many things by title in the Bible that aren't in the Bible. But there are many things in the Bible that we use titles for to explain the concept or the idea so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. Case in point would be Trinity just a good shorthand for understanding things and finally and all god's people said amen but see it's better to do this than do two parts just all there is to it number seven what's the practical importance of understanding covenants what's the practical importance it'll help you make sense of scripture it'll help you make sense of scripture it'll help you understand assurance of salvation is not based upon what you do in your mosaic law keeping Assurance comes from God who makes covenants and He keeps them Himself and shows that He keeps them in the finished work of Christ. If I had a cross behind me. It'll help you to read the Bible um, just more, more clearly, more proficiently, more sanely, if you will. 
It'll also safeguard you and help you. It'll help protect you. When you're reading an author and they're talking about Mosaic law as if it's what you must do to be saved, you'll say, I I know that that's not the case. I know that that's not the case. Well, the list could go on. We're way out of time. Uh, Appreciate you being patient and kind with me. I'm going to pray. We're going to be done. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your glorious salvation. Thank you that Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. And we're thankful that that has been secured for us. We're grateful that we have a perfect mediator. We can worship you uh, even though we're broken and sinful. Um, Lord, it's sad to know that these kinds of things can be divisive and controversial. Um, We confess it before you that we don't know all things. Only you do. Um, But we are thankful for those who've gone before us. We're thankful even for controversies in one sense um, so that we can um, become sharpened and understand things better uh, that we might not have understood uh, otherwise. I even think of Galatians and how that Galatian heresy and that that false teaching that went on there, uh, that we wouldn't understand the gospel as well as we do today if it weren't for that, that we would be more prone to confusing um, law and grace, law and gospel if it weren't for that. And Uh, Help us to even see the controversies that happen in our own lives as a result of this. Um, Thank you so much for your people, for your grace, for your church, and for your promise uh, to sanctify us until we see Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.